The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. In a moment, we'll bring you our interview with the EU's former Brexit chief negotiator, Michel Barnier. Uh, He's got some thoughts on the UK-EU relationship. Rishi Sunak's focusing on a different kind of international relations today. He's still in the US after his baseball diplomacy grown at the baseball game yesterday. Uh, Today, he's thinking about artificial intelligence. Uh, He's been meeting some big CEOs in that area recently, and he's going to bring it up too with Joe Biden. I guess the key thing is, will all of this add to economic growth? The OECD recently said that the UK will have the second slowest growth in the G7 this year and the joint worst next year, although in fairness, these forecasts do seem to change with a lot of regularity. But it's particularly awkward in this case for the government because this forecast was prepared by Claire Lombardelli, who was chief economist at the Treasury until very recently. Well, Lizzie Burden went to meet one of the politicians currently at the Treasury, Financial Secretary Victoria Atkins. And she started by asking her if the government understands the scale of the issue, even if their own former chief economist puts them near the bottom of the table. Well, we have taken a very responsible, fiscally responsible approach to the nation's finances. It's why you'll remember in the autumn statement, uh, Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor said that we were having to make some very difficult decisions in order to uh, meet the many considerable pressures that the UK economy is facing, including, of course, uh, the, um, race, the rate of inflation and the impact, for example, of fuel prices and energy prices. So that's why we, we understand the OECD's uh, analysis. And we're very pleased, actually, that uh, they have boosted, upgraded uh, their forecast for our growth, uh, as well as commending our plans on things such as childcare to get more parents back into work if they feel able to do so, and also our plans to incentivise businesses to invest in the UK economy. So it was we very much welcome those positive um, comments from the OECD. But on tax, the OECD's chief economist, of course, is the Treasury's former chief economist, Claire Lombardelli. She can make these calls now. Why can't the government? Well, as I say, we have very much taken on um, the, the, the need to be fiscally responsible. And so that's why in the autumn statement, Jeremy uh, Hunt as Chancellor made some very difficult decisions in relation to uh, income tax thresholds and so on, precisely because we understood that given the global headwinds we are facing, uh, we had to make some very, very tough decisions in order to meet those. But the Prime Minister um, is determined and indeed has put it as his number one priority to halve inflation this year because we know that inflation uh, hurts everybody but particularly the poorest in society and so that is what we're doing to to, uh, boost investment, to boost growth but also to support the Bank of England and their important plans on uh, tackling uh, inflation. But on that front this report also concludes that the Chancellor's stealth tax rises are going to add 
to pressure on households, that's adding to the cost of living crisis itself, isn't it? What inflation does, I mean, it hurts, as I say, it hurts everyone, but it particularly hurts the poorest in society. And that's why, um, for example, with the energy price guarantee that we've uh, introduced over the last year, we've been able not only to help families with their energy bills, really importantly, but also uh, we are, uh, we've knocked some two percentage points off inflation. Uh, according to the Bank of England. So these are very, you know, these are tough policies. There's nothing, nothing inevitable about um, a, a, a inflation rate decreasing, but that is why we're putting everything we can towards uh, halv halving inflation this year and therefore uh, growing the economy uh, because that's, the, that's how we're going to uh, improve everyone's livelihoods, everyone's uh, prosperity by growing the economy whilst halving inflation. Well, in terms of this mission to halve inflation by year end, the Chancellor's economic adviser, Karen Ward, who's also at JP Morgan Asset Management, of course, has just told Bloomberg this morning that fragility is necessary, that the Bank of England needs to hike rates so much that people actually think twice about asking for pay rises, that companies think twice about hiking prices. Is she right? Well, look, I, I don't. I'm, I mustn't comment as a Treasury Minister on what the Bank of England may be considering, because of course the Bank of England uh, is independent. But we do support uh, efforts across the country to, to tackle inflation, because as I say, it hurts everyone, and we see this. It's, it's why, for example, we've had to. Uh, make some very difficult decisions when it comes to um, wage uh, increases. You know, we, we've had some difficult months over the last uh, few months with people, with uh, the public sector in particular, asking for wage increases. And we've had to explain that we can't uh, consider some of the increases that have been asked for because we are very worried about the effect that would have on the wider economy and, and on inflation. But this is why the, the our sustainable plan to um, halve inflation, to get the economy growing. This is what is going to uh, bring us out of um, these uh, difficulties. And it's really encouraging, actually, that the OECD joins the uh, Bank of England and indeed the IMF in uh, upgrading their forecasts for our growth this year. We are, you know, the, the whole of uh, the G7 are seeing these pressures and uh, those international organisations are saying, look, we're doing the right thing. Our plan is beginning to help grow the economy, but we've got to keep at it because there is nothing inevitable about a reduction in inflation. It's through hard work and, and good plans that we will make this happen. So the OECD has upgraded the growth forecast to 0.3%. Should we really be celebrating anemic growth? Well, it's in the right direction. Um, and when we look at uh, the G7 as a whole, it's fair to say that all of us have faced these global pressures. I mean, we, we must not forget both the hangover of the COVID uh, pandemic and the impact that had on businesses around the world, supply chains and so on, but also, of course, uh, the uh, unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia has had very severe economic consequences uh, for countries. And indeed, only this morning I was here in Paris at the OECD uh, meeting uh, other nations to talk about how we can use tax to help developing countries, to help them set up their tax basis, their tax systems, to help them uh, and their economies thrive. 
But we all acknowledge that all of us are facing these very difficult pressures and we're having to find our uh, ways through of dealing with them. What is good is that the OECD is saying, look, the plans that you set out at, at spring budget, for example, on childcare and the plans to incentivise businesses to invest in the UK economy, those are good things and we should be doing, uh, we, sh we should take some confidence and heart from that, uh, that acknowledgement. I'll come back to tax, but your boss, the Chancellor himself, has said that, uh, well, he agreed that he was comfortable with the Bank of England doing whatever it takes to bring down inflation, even if that precipitates a recession. Would you use that sort of language? Well, in fairness, um, Jeremy went on, if, if you look at the full quote, Jeremy went on to say um, that, uh, that there isn't a trade-off between inflation and a recession. What we need to do is to halve inflation, cut inflation, so that uh, the money in our pockets and our purses uh, goes further uh, and the economy can begin to really uh, grow. Uh, and so it, it's, I know it's had some headlines recently, but I think what Jeremy was trying to say was, look, through tackling inflation, that is going to help all of us uh, and um, it's going to help, particularly with our business expensing policies that we introduced at Spring Budget, that's going to help investment in the UK economy. OK, and on tax, the implementation of the 15% global minimum corporation tax rate is a big topic for you there. How is that going to interact with your policies on free ports and investment allowances? Well, we, the UK, are leading the discussions around the world on this important uh, tax. Uh, the, the reasons for it, uh, some listeners will, may know, uh, it's called Pillar 2. Uh, the reasons for it is to ensure that multinational corporations can't pick and choose where they uh, put their profits, where they put their headquarters in order to try to get a tax advantage. It's about having that minimum floor of um, tax take across the world and and uh, we're making really good progress. Uh, and indeed, as I say, the UK has been leading on discussions with this really important piece of work. But in terms of uh, tax treatment in the uh, UK, of course, uh, the minimum floor is set by the OECD is some 15%. As we um, uh, have had to do through the, the finance bill that I'm taking through the House of Commons at the moment, we're having to raise corporation tax uh, to 25%, uh, but with the important full expensing policy, which will help businesses invest here in the UK. And so for us, we welcome this uh, policy. We support it. It's why we're legislating for it. We don't, there, there, will, there will not be repercussions for free ports and other forms of policy. And what do you say to those who are concerned that the rate could be lifted over time? Of course, Joe Biden originally wanted 21% rather than 15%. Well, it, it, the, um, the way that the OECD operates is that uh, we have a veto. So if we get to a stage in the future where we're not happy with a proposal, then we are able to veto it and it will not happen. But I, I don't want to give the impression that there is any sort of um, disagreement on this in the OECD. There is real support for this. It's, it was really encouraging, actually, today to see, um, just from meeting other ministers and, and ambassadors and so on, the real support there is is for this measure and I think in the medium term we'll see you know this will be good news for those countries uh, where multinational corporations perhaps uh, are um, changing or shifting their profits in order to um, uh, take advantage of much lower rates of tax it will mean that we 
level up across the um, tax field to the benefit of everyone who has signed up to this deal. So I think it's a, it's a positive step forward and acknowledges, of course, the very changing uh, economies that we're seeing around the world in the 21st century. Well, that was Financial Secretary to the Treasury, Victoria Atkins, speaking to our own Lizzie Burden. Of course, another big factor affecting the UK's growth is Brexit. Could improved relations with the EU perhaps provide some relief in that direction? This is something that we've been talking to Michel Barnier about. Remember him? The EU's chief Brexit negotiator. He's written the book My Secret Brexit Diary with some extremely detailed entries about that long and at sometimes torturous process. We started by asking Michel Barnier a very simple question. Is Brexit done? Yes, Brexit is done and... uh Clearly speaking, for the EU side, for the 27 member states, uh, Brexit is uh, uh, on the book. Huh? And we are working now and uh, uh, acting for our future, taking into account that the fact that the UK is out. Do you think that UK politicians have fully reckoned with the impact of Brexit? Se- seven years on, have we, ha- have we fully understood that? It seems to me that... Uh, Part of the consequences have not been uh, um, seen in their the, the reality. But it is not the first time I have this, uh, this thought. Uh, when I began the negotiation in 16, uh, I remember a press conference in front of many hundreds of journalists, and I said the Brexit will have multiple consequences, social, technical, financial, legal, political consequences. And... Uh, Generally speaking, they have been underestimated by the UK side from the beginning until now, I think so. But there is no secret, uh, despite the the title of my book. uh, It was total transparency about what are mechanically, mechanically the consequences of leaving the EU and more than leaving the EU, leaving the single market, which is a key point. The next mechanical step is going to be the review in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the post-Brexit trade agreement set for 2025. Do you see big changes happening to that relationship when that review happens? Review does not mean change. One point cannot be changed. The reality of the single market, the rules, the norms, the conditions to be part or to, to have a relation with the single market uh, will not change. And as I said, uh, all along the negotiation, on the name of the 27 member states, the Parliament, it was my mandate. We could not accept and we cannot accept and we will not accept any kind of unravelling uh, or cherry-picking single market. So the, the UK knows perfectly what, what is the rules and Brexit means Brexit, so we can, can be in and out at the same time. Now there are some more deadlines looming before 2025 and I appreciate you're, you're, you're not involved with these negotiations now, but... One of those involves uh, electric cars and the sourcing of components. Uh, do you think that's a, a resolvable issue for the two sides? You, you just said for the two sides. That, that means in the interest of the two sides. And the point is to know if uh, the interest of the UK is exactly the same as the interest of the EU car industry. And we, uh, we will have to, to see clearly. But there, once again, there is no surprise. You are speaking about the, the rule of origin, for instance, in, in this specific matter. The, the, the rules are known from the very beginning of the negotiation and the, until the end 
I, I remember that the, the British government tried to negotiate into uh, the best uh, condition for the car industry, but the, the rules are clear and we, we are not ready. And I will be very vigilant on my side as far as, uh, as, as well as uh, the member states. Um, uh, we're not ready, we are not ready to accept any kind of uh, trade picking in the single market. We're at Bloomberg, sitting in the city of London, so I'd like to ask you about financial services. Equivalence has been a very thorny issue, I think, for, for both sides, uh, acknowledging that the UK and EU standards are roughly equal in, in financial services until 2025. Is that an area where progress can be made uh, on, an, on a new deal, looking, looking forward? We are not opposed to the fact to give some, uh, some equivalences, it, it will be already the case in some sector, very specific sector. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, uh, the city leaders and the, the city investors have to be realistic. The UK have left the EU, has left the single market. It is your choice, not our choice. The, the city has lost the, the financial passport and it is clearly uh, the, the, the consequence of the Brexit. So. Uh, I want to be friendly, but uh, but, <laughs> but it will never at the detriment of the single market, at the detriment of the EU investors. M more widely, has the threat of Singapore on Thames gone away? A, a deregulated UK 30 kilometres off the coast of France. Has that worry gone away now for the EU? The answer is here, in London. What will be uh, the strategy or... Uh, the politics of uh, the policy of the UK government. Uh, we, we are very uh, uh, vigilant on this point. There is uh, lots of chapters in the in the Brexit agreement about what I called the level playing field, in particular for financial services. And we know this theory or this strategy of Johnson to create a Singapore and Thames. Uh, we, we are very vigilant. But the answer to your question is not uh, on the EU side. The answer is here in the, the, what will what will do and what want to do the, the British government, and I hope the, the, the government of UK, the, the government, the current government, the, whatever the government will be in UK in the next few years, the, the level playing field will be respected. I think it's a common interest. You mentioned the next government here in the UK. Currently, the Labour Party leading in the polls. Would a Labour government? be able to reset relations with the European Union? Do you think the relationship would look very different under a different party's leadership? Whatever the government, the UK government will be the next few months or few years, the, the, the door is open. We are ready to, to, to discuss. We are ready to improve our relations, in particular in a very strategic field and issue where Johnson refused to open a negotiation about security, defence, cooperation in Africa, we are ready to improve uh, and to, to rebuild a good cooperation on this field, of, in particular in, at, at that moment of the, the war in Ukraine. We are ready to, to improve our relations, but as far as trade is concerned, uh, the, 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 deal, the deal has been done uh, and it will not change. We can improve it, we can uh, go into detail, for, for instance, for the, uh, let me just take one specific example about veterinary uh, relations to, to, to facilitate the relation between our uh, between the UK and EU, but in the substance of the trade agreement, there will be no change. 
How important has the change of Prime Minister been, uh, the ushering in of Rishi Sunak to the, the warming of EU relations? Well, clearly speaking, uh, Rishi Sunak is, uh, shows a goodwill and it was clearly uh, the, the change uh, between uh, Johnson and, and, and Sunak and uh, the reason why we succeed, the Commission uh, shows a maximum of flexibility, uh, Rishi Sunak shows a goodwill and we succeed to to agree on the Windsor Agreement to implement the Protocol on Ireland. At the time, the, the UK government has decided to respect his signature and to respect and to implement the agreement we signed with, with him. I think uh, we, can, uh, we can build a new relation. I think uh, it's so necessary. If you look with realism to so many challenges we have to, to face together, the, the climate change is um, the most serious, but also terrorism, the stability and security in Europe, the poverty in Africa and all the, the migration it, it can provoke, uh, how to face challenges uh, of the, the, the big company of uh, in internet or the, the, the big company in financial services and mm. keep our autonomy, independence. Uh, we, we look at all these challenges, it's clear that we have to face more efficiently together than alone. So, so this is the reason why I hope that we can uh, turn the page of the Brexit, turn the page of the not so good relations with with Johnson because he, he did not respect his signature and now to, to build this new relation with UK and EU. Nobody's expecting the UK to ask to rejoin the EU in the next few years, but if the UK did ask that, what would the EU say? The door is open. Clearly the door is open and it's open from the beginning and it will remain open. The only point I want to mention on Bloomberg today that is uh, the, the fact that uh, when you join the EU, when you ask for an accession, uh, you have to be ready to respect the, the common rules, the, the, the norms and the conditions. Of, uh, and the UK knows quite well this condition because we have built this condition with the UK during 45 years. 45 years. So the, the, the UK knows perfectly these conditions. And the point is to know, I don't know when this question will be posed. I know we will ask, we will see. It, 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 do, you think it, do you think it will be posed? Do you think that's I don't know, I don't know. The, the, it is a, the, a question for the, it's a, for the UK people to decide, not for me, not for the Europeans. But we are ready. The door is open. The only point I want to mention is that uh, at that time, I don't know when, what will be the size of the divergence? The point is this one. It's very key. The size of divergence for regulation on environment, social, fiscal and regulations, what would be the, the divergence? If there is a divergence, it could be the problem at that time, but, but uh, the door is open. How do you find visiting the UK now? How do people react to you? Because you became quite a famous figure in this country during the negotiations. <laughs> I don't know exactly, but I, I've, I've always for the, your country, for this country, a, a, a great respect. And, and and even admiration, I I, I do not uh, forget what your country did for for France and for Europe during the Second World War, and your solidarity. Uh, um, I had a lot of admiration for many leaders uh, of the UK history, in particular Winston Churchill, and um, I had great respect for the, the, the defence policy, the external policy. The, the, economic trade capacity of the UK. So uh, I always managed this negotiation with this respect. Uh, just for, for me to recall that my very first vote 
as a young French citizen when I was 21. It was in 73. Uh, at that time, the French president organized a referendum for the accession of the UK, Ireland, Denmark, and Norway. And my, despite the fact I belonged to the Gaullist party, I campaigned for the yes. Uh, and uh, I never regret this vote. So I have a great respect. But it's the reason why I regret this vote. Until now, uh, nobody has been able to give me the, any proof of the added value of the Brexit. Nobody. You've had a, a, a storied political career um, and, of course, your sporting career as well. What's next for Michel Barnier? What's next? Uh, it's not necessary to recall my age. So <laughs> I, d- I, I, I was very careful to... Yeah, yeah, uh, yes, but to, I, I know my age, so <laughs> I'm very realistic. So I just want to, to, to be useful by taking part to the debate in my country, in particular uh, uh, the way of, um, of the European elections in next year. And uh, my country... Are you going to stand? Hmm? Are you going to stand in those elections? No, I, we will see. We will see. I'm not, I have no personal uh, agenda on this issue. Or I just tell you that I want to take part, my part, to the European debate because I want that my country and my party... Uh, remain European. Uh, no, d- coming back to the UK, uh, uh, nobody can can be happy looking at the difficulties of the others, and certainly not France because we have our own uh, trouble today, and so we can give any lessons. But uh, we are not happy looking at the difficulty of the social and economic difficulty of the UK. Number two, I think that all these difficulties are not linked to the Brexit. There's many other reasons. Number three, I think that all these difficulties are more serious and more difficult, if I may say, because of the Brexit. Well, that was Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, who's written that book, My Secret Brexit Diary. Look, it was a fascinating conversation, Ewan. I think that we learned that there isn't a whole lot of optimism about improvements in the short term uh, about the EU's relationship with the UK, although he did, of course, use that line, the door is open a couple of times, not only to the eventual or perhaps prospect of the UK might one day want to rejoin the EU, um, but also in when it comes to some sorting out some of those more immediate issues. Yeah, fascinating to get his thoughts. Of course, it is only depressingly two years until the trade deal comes up for uh, not renegotiation, but for, not renegotiation, but for review. Yes, I'm very and interested he, to get his thoughts on that. Yeah, and he did insist that a review does not mean changes. So that was our interview with Michel Barnier, and that's all we have time for today. If you like the program, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.